exactly what the songs were speaking about was what I was talking. And it's remarkable that coming here today, the same exact thing happens, but it happens in the form of uh, two testimonies that were offered. Uh, One was what my sister was saying earlier about light and darkness. She had many passages from John, and interesting enough, the passage that we'll be in today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, is 1 John chapter 4. And John loves this theme of light and darkness, as the youth know. But speaking of the youth, there was also another testimony here in the newsletter, in another format, that provides an introduction on what we're going to be talking about. Judy writes, Indeed, worship has a way of refreshing my heart and rejuvenating my spirit. God's word is the truth, and as painful as the words may seem, they are standards of love, and God is the source of love. And today we're going to be focusing on that theme of love and God as the source of love. The last time I had preached, it was back in New York, and I had focused on the Great Commission that my brother was talking about as being the most wonderful romance that the church has, that we get to be a part of bringing the gospel of love to the entire world. And today we're going to continue on that theme of love, but we're going to focus on love within the church. Another way that God had worked is when I was taking a break, I look at Fox News, you know, between my sermon preparation, and at the very bottom right-hand corner was a video, and the video was entitled, Can You Be Spiritual and Non-Religious? Can You Be Spiritual and Non-Religious? And the gentleman over in the Philippines, right, he was very spiritual. He took a little bit of Islam, you know, he took a little bit of this, a little bit of that, he threw it all together, and, you know, he was spiritual. And you'll find when you ask people nowadays, what polls will tell you is that people are way more spiritual nowadays um, than they used to be, but they don't like that term religion, you know, true life. Uh, so they're less likely to go to church. They're, th- they're less likely to trust doctrine, but, man, they're spiritual. But the moment you ask them what that means, they have a very difficult time telling you that. And it's the same thing with what we're going to talk about today, love. People have a very difficult time defining what love is, but they just know that you've got to love. So we're going to focus on love. And in this passage, when Mark Driscoll preached it, he wanted to focus on culture's understanding of love. He said that culture has two main definitions for love. The first definition is mainly sexual, right? People confuse perversion and lust with love. They'll say that that's how you identify love. And since Filipinos like karaoke so much, I've tried to include as many song references as possible in the sermon. So one here is by Tina Turner. And you may, have, uh, you may recognize it, but it kind of reflects this understanding of love, this understanding of love that leads to cynicism and hedonism. And it goes a little something like this. Oh, what's love got to do with it, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it, got to do, it, do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Another illustration that I gave to the youth, and none of us understood where this came from, but it's apparently a really popular folk song called The Lemon Tree. And the lemon tree puts this cynicism, this understanding of love like this. Lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flower is sweet, but the fruit of the poor lemon is impossible to eat. And it's comparing love there to a lemon. Another way that people in our society today understand love is this selfish love. This, you love me, I love you. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. But the problem with that love is it leads to this wandering and it leads to all this suffering. That's one of the reasons that divorce is so high in our society is people say, I just fell out of love, whatever that means. A song that you guys will also recognize goes a little something like this and it portrays that endless wandering. 
I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching your eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of, hoping to find a friend and a lover. God bless the day that I discover another heart looking for love. And then he presents the real view, the biblical view of love. The, bibl- the, the view that love itself is a verb, it's something that we do. He defines that it's serving in a supernatural way. When it comes to religion, there's also this same time of, type of cynicism. Frank Sinatra puts it like this. For me, religion is a deeply personal thing in which man and God go it alone together without the witch doctor in the middle. We're going to correct some of this understanding of this relation between true religion, life, and true love by looking at 1 John chapter 4. So where do we look for love? What's love got to do with us, the church? For these answers, let's turn to the epistle that's known as the letter of love, 1 John. Now before we dig into our passage, let me provide you guys with a brief background of the letter. Martin Luther declared of 1 John, I have never read a book written in simpler words than this one, yet the words are inexpressible. William Penn was so struck by the new command given in 1 John that he renamed the chief city of Pennsylvania after the love commands given in the letter. Philadelphia. Now, the author of the letter is known as the Apostle of Love. The most well-known love verse of the Bible is found in his gospel, the Gospel of John. And if you guys were to guess what is the love verse in the Bible, what would you say? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Over the past year, the youth of GGCF and I have spent every Sunday going chapter by chapter through the book of John so they may have a little bit of an advantage over you all in understanding some of the themes that we're going to talk about today. And one of the themes that John focuses on over and over and over again in the book of John, the gospel of John, is this idea of eternal life. The first half of the book is known as the book of signs. He goes and talks about all these different miracles, and the whole point of the miracles for John is to point towards True eternal life. That's why the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they start with Jesus' birth. But John starts his Gospel with Jesus' eternality, how he has existed for all eternity. He is the Word, and the Word was God. And he focuses then on God's nature here in Jesus, right? Coming and doing all these different miracles that point towards him. Then the second half of the book is known as the book of Passion, which all focuses at the end towards slowing down time and focusing on Jesus' death on the cross. Not simply living in heaven and playing harp strings is the understanding here of eternal life. Now, we're not going to get to heaven and play games of golf all day. But when John is talking about eternal life, he's talking about something present here and now. Something that begins the moment somebody becomes a Christian. Not something that you wait for when you die. At the end of the Gospel of John, we're told exactly why John writes the book. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The letter of 1 John, we find that John does the same thing by using this phrase, written, to explain why he writes the epistle. In 1 John 1.4, the apostle says, we write this to make our joy complete. In 1 John 2.1, he says, I write this so that you will not sin. And in 1 John 2.26, he says, I am writing these things to you about those who are leading you astray. 
Now, the occasion of him writing, before I get to that fourth purpose statement, which is the most important one for our discussion today, is that they just had a group of false teachers who were teaching them these false things leave the church, right? They were teaching them incorrect things about sin, incorrect things about the Christ, and then they had a schism and they left. So here you have this church that's suffering, right, from, from this doctrinal and ethical error. And the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle John takes up the task of writing them this letter. So here you got the old Apostle John addressing these churches to comfort them and to correct false teaching from these false teachers. And you can see how relevant this is for us today because we have the same scenario now where the culture is trying to tell us that love is something other than what we find in Scripture. So just as Brother John had addressed this church to correct false teaching, so now through the Holy Spirit he addresses us and our understanding of how love is supposed to function in the church. So with this relevance noted, it brings us to our fourth and most important purpose statement for the epistle of John. Do you remember how he waited to the end of the gospel to tell us why he wrote the book, the book of John? Well, he does the same thing in the epistle. In 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John 3.16 in the gospel says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 20.31, his purpose statement in the book says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For John, this idea of eternal life and the Son is very, very important. In essence, John writes the letter of 1 John so that you may know you have eternal life. He writes the letter so that you know you have eternal life. He writes the book, the gospel, so that you can know how to have eternal life. And how do we know that we have eternal life here, now, and forever? This leads us to our passage for reflection. Now, we find several themes within the epistle of John, 1 John. It's a very, very difficult book to organize into chunks. It's not like when Paul writes a letter. It's very easy to see, you know, he presents this, and then he goes on to the next thing. But with 1 John, I mean, he, he looks like he's going all over the place. But we find two important themes that are kind of like threads that are sewn throughout the letter that will reappear, reappear over and over and over again. One of them, as you can guess, is eternal life. And another one that's important, as we'll see today, is love. Now, in, John, in 1 John 2, 7 through 11, John mentions that love is the command of loving our brothers. Then in 1 John 3.11, John mentions that love is the evidence of someone walking in light, someone being a Christian, as you had said, not walking in darkness. And then we get to 4.7-12. through 12. And this is where John makes this bold claim that God is love. And we're going to dig into that now that we have a cultural and historical understanding, a background you know, to what John is going to teach us here about love and about God. So if you would read with me, 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now I want you to notice that love comes from God. Every occurrence of true love in this world has its source in God. However, we can't confuse ourselves into thinking that every expression of what we would like to call love is from God. As John Piper clarifies, saying love is from God is not like saying a letter is from the mailman. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, the mailman delivers the letter, but it's not from him. It's from whoever wrote it and sent it. 
The mailman is not the source of the letter, but he's the vehicle or the carrier. Now, he can choose to deliver the, the letter to someone other than the one that's written up there on the address, but to do so would be to abuse his role as a carrier. Now, we have a tendency to abuse our role as a vehicle of love by delivering it, by taking it to areas that it's not supposed to go. In the Bible, this is known as idolatry. This is the love of things or people or individuals or the self in place of God. 1 John 4, 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, you first have to notice what this verse doesn't say. This verse does not say love is God. There's a big difference between saying God is love and love is God. A lot of people I'll meet, you know, my generation, especially the younger generation, they all have this understanding that, you know, anything that's love is God. God's just love, man, you know. God is love and love is God, so don't judge, you know, none of this nonsense. If you love, that's all you need. Didn't someone say that? Love is all you need? Another song reference? Yeah, John Lennon said that, but he also said the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, right? That's, that's a little problematic. Others would make the mistake of isolating God's love. This is, this is what happens a lot with Christians. This was the error of the liberal Protestants, right? Is they wanted to just isolate you know, the, 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 the attribute, the characteristic of love above everything else. God is loving, and that's it. But they forget that God is a bunch of other things. What else is God? He's holy. One of the songs we sang yesterday, Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. He's other things too. I think in Revelations, he's described as, you know, this burning fire. And as we heard earlier, which I was um, great for for the introduction, God is light. And this is a really big thing for John when he talks about God being light. Now, he tells us in the gospel of John, the book of John. Okay, here we'll have the book of John here, and then we'll have the letter of John over here. In the book of John, he tells us that Jesus is light. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And then he tells us in this letter that we're studying today that God is light. There's a uh, verse you can give a Jehovah Witness, right? Look what John's doing here. He's first comparing Jesus to being light, and then he's coming over here and saying God is light, and he authored both the epistle and the gospel. But he says in 1 John 1, 5, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's a difference in saying God is loving and God is love. Now, I would say my wife Katrina is loving. She has the attribute of being loving, but I couldn't elevate her to the point where I would say she is love. I mean, do you see how, you know, uh, this is why John's doing this in two verses. He's first saying love is from God, and then he just blows it out of the water and says, and God is love. Because you can't say that with anything. You can't say that with anyone you know. That God so perfects this attribute of love that he is love. The mailman could choose to tell you that the letter is from him. He could choose to tell you that he wrote the letter himself, but to do so would be to distort the true source and the sender of the letter. We have a tendency to distort the source of love by redefining it ourselves, whether it be pop psychology or new age religions, merging what you want. 
human philosophies, what I've gone through in studying ethics, or even, you know, popular culture and music. All of them will try to redefine for you what love is. We already mentioned two of the examples that Driscoll had given us. So this first point for us today is that God is the source of all love. He is the source of all love. If, if someone were to ask you, well, what is love? The scriptural answer you know, would be God. God is love. Where does love come from? It comes from God. But wouldn't it be nice if we just kind of knew what that looked like? I mean, because that's, that's a good enough answer. We could just stop the sermon right there, and you guys would now know where does love come from? It comes from God. But God is so wonderful in his grace that he is going to give us in the next verses a model. He's going to show us exactly what that looks like because he cares for us so much. He wants to put it in human language. I can't remember if it was Calvin or Luther. I think it was Calvin that said God talks, you know, in like baby babbles to us. You know, he he talks in a language that we can understand. That's one of the, the things that's so amazing about the incarnation, Jesus taking flesh, is we can understand that. He's come down and he's he's speaking our language. So we go to the next verse in 1 John 4, 9, and it reads, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Now it was mentioned earlier that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And we can't confuse ourselves into thinking that what that's trying to say is just because someone tells you that they're a loving person or that they love you know, they're a child of God. That's another mistake the, little, the liberal Protestants have made. You know, they, they term it the brotherhood of man. Everybody is a child of God. But that's not what John's writing at all. I mean, that's one of the reasons you'll find beloved and you'll find all these terms. It's one of my favorite terms. That's why I love, I love kuya anate, it's brother and sister. For me to use those terms is the highest expression that I can have uh, that you are, you know, that we're spiritual kin. And he does this all throughout the letter. But also, we see um, that him talking about abiding and having faith is solely in Christ. So he's writing this letter to these Christians. He's presupposing that this is how they're already going to be behaving. We can see that in our text. It says, we might live through him. John tells us plenty of times that true life comes through the Son. And notice how this discussion of love and life is woven together. 1 John 4.10 reads, in this is love. So we know that whatever's going to follow this phrase here, in this is love, it's going to be important to understanding what love is, right? And this is what follows. In this is love, comma, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. My youth have understood that when there's a repetition in scripture, especially when it's a verse right after a verse, I mean, the Spirit is saying, hey, this is a big focus here. You better stop and read this again. And he does this in our text by compiling these two verses and saying, well, what does, God, what does love look like? And he repeats Jesus' mission. But he doesn't just talk about what Jesus did in his life. I mean, that would be remarkable in and of itself, you know, the healing, all these wonders he does in the Gospel of John. But he specifically points to this word propitiation. He specifically points to what Jesus had accomplished on the cross. That is what love looks like. That's what the Gospel of John does with every miracle that he portrays. Every miracle is pointing towards what he's going to do on the cross. That selflessness is what love looks like. This hits at the heart of what he's been trying to express in defining love for us. 
Not only is God love, and he's the source of love, and the standard of love, and the definition of love, but he models love for us. Jesus coming to die for our sins, that is what love looks like. And the best part is that it doesn't start with us. It's free. And that's both the best part and the scariest part. Because we would want it to be a reaction to our love for him. That's the human tendency. We want God to love us because we love God. In studying world religions, I find that a lot. You know, these, these humans have created because they have this impulse to love, this impulse for meaning, this impulse for true living. So they go about and create philosophies or they go about and create all these different religions with that very purpose of finding meaning. And what's really interesting is Christianity is the only real uh, religion where you find this concept of grace. You know, this is what God has given you, and it's free, and you didn't deserve it. And that's troubling. It's out of my hands. It's centered there on God. All throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites see this. And that's the story of the gospel. You know, you got them wandering in the desert, and what happens? They fail God over and over and over again. God part, I mean, he, he, he splits the sea, and he's with them with all these miracles, and still the Israelites disbelieve, and they still rebel against God, and they still commit idolatry. And what does God do? God's grace is evident. When they complain and the serpents are sent, he provides the staff that when the staff is lifted up and people look towards the staff as Christ was lifted up and people look towards Christ, they're healed. I mean, even in my, my, one of my favorite pieces of, of uh, scripture, the proto-gospel, Genesis 1 through 3, we see that exact picture. Adam and Eve sin against God. And what does God do? He promises them in 3.15, right after he gives them the punishment that he will send through her seed, will come the one who will crush the head of the serpent. So even in there, you have God's promises all throughout. He does this, you know, this beautiful, wonderful story of the gospel, not because we're worthy, but because he considers us worth it. Although we are not worthy, God does not consider us worthless. We're used to love being a response to our actions. I do this for you, and you love me in return. I scratch your back, and you scratch mine. But God flips this on its head. The all-powerful, perfect being, the one who could actually say, I'm deserving of all love, I've created everything, and I own everything, he doesn't take this attitude at all. Because it's in his very nature, the very nature of the triune God. This is why the Trinity can explain diversity like we see here. Or it can explain love because the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit have existed in all of eternity and they've loved one another selflessly. And there's a diversity there. And then when God creates humanity, he creates the man and woman. He creates them diverse and he creates them in a way that can love. That's something Islam and these um, you know, pure monotheistic religions can't explain. It's the diversity of humanity and, and love. So our love then is a response to his. And what exactly are we responding to? So what does God's love look like? Well, John says it twice. The cross, Jesus coming, dying for sins, propitiation, to use the theological term. He does this, this emphasis by the double repetition. God's love is modeled in the Son who came to die on the cross for our sins and to give us eternal life. And not only is God the source of love, but he models what genuine love looks like. It's selfless, it's free, and it's radical. It is evident not only in the life of Jesus, but John points specifically to this act of propitiatory atonement. And after telling us what the source of love is and providing us a model, what else then does John have to tell us about love? And here we enter our final two verses. 
1 John 4.11. It starts, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. After telling us the source and providing us the model, John gives us the command. This is evident in that if-ought combination. You know, in ethics, um, those are very important terms in ethics, the if-ought, you know, the right-wrong. So we know if that ought, whatever that ought means, that's like, you know, very important on a way that we're supposed to behave. It's different than saying, I prefer you to go outside. You know, like if you tell your son, I prefer you to go play outside. Is different than you saying, you ought to go outside. I mean, one's telling you, you got to do this, right? And when I first came to this passage, I thought, you know, we ought to love each other. I thought, you know, here's the cross. It's so beautiful, the act of Christ. And now he tells me I ought to love, so i got to go and copy it. And, and that's, actually, I think that's the first way I even taught the text to the youth. But in preparation, John Piper kind of, you know, just acts that off. The ought here is used differently. It's not like, the, you know, remember the from, how the from was used differently to say the letters from the mailman? Well, here it's like saying a fish ought to swim or a bird ought to fly. I mean, would you expect anything different than a bird flying or a fish swimming? No, it's in their very nature. So when he's saying this, he's saying, well, look what God has done through the cross. You ought to love. That's the very nature of the Christian. I mean, this is what they do. This is who they are. This is what they look like because what? That's how the Father looks like. That's why we have that model of the cross. In verse 7, John makes the statement, everyone who loves has been born of God. And that's why it's key. You know, if you don't remember that he was talking about a birth here, you know, God loves you first. And then the very opening of this passage is talking about a birth. You would then think this legalism of, well, I got to just go do good things. And that would be another error. Because what he's trying to tell you is you have been, as a Christian, reborn. And the rebirth of the Christian is why you ought to love, because that's what Christians do. This mentioned birth is life-changing. It would be more accurate to say that it isn't life-changing, but that it's life-giving. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus in the Gospel of John in chapter 3 that what? He must be born again. In coming to Jesus, we don't simply find a source and a model of love. We don't simply find a command to love. We find eternal life itself. We find true life. What life is supposed to look like, what is truly human, is what we find in this eternal life. Not a reward for good behavior. You know, not a reward for saying a prayer or doing something. But God gives us a totally new life. And this starts, this communion, this relationship that is, you know, horizontal and vertical, vertical between you and God and horizontal between you and the brethren, he gives this to you. We're reborn in the image of the Father. And this is the Father who is love. Christians then become like the Son, and then God loves through us and empowers us to love. Now, um, I had remembered, I don't know who it is, but I remembered something had mentioned that there were some relationships between the brethren that were unreconciled. Now, you can see how silly something like that is from the perspective of John. How can that possibly be? Christians ought to love. How can they not forgive one another? You know, it's like a hairdryer in the understanding of our definition of love. You can use a hairdryer for a whole bunch of different things. You ever think about that? How many of you guys have used a hairdryer as a hammer? No one. All right. But you can. You know, you can grab a nail and you can put a picture frame up, or you can break apart the hair dryer and perhaps you can use some of the pieces for something else. 
But when does the hair dryer work? It doesn't work until it's plugged in to the outlet, until it's plugged into the power source. And then the hair dryer gets to be used for what it's supposed to be used for. It's the same thing with humanity. I mean, that's what eternal life is trying to tell you here. You got to be plugged into the proper source. And then you will be used, you know, what you were created for. What's truly human, what's true life, what's true eternal life. When you're plugged into the power source that is God, you can truly love and love selflessly because the love that's coming out of you is not your own doing. Right? God loved you first. The love that comes out of the brethren, the love that comes out of those who are born again, the love that comes out of those who are Christians, the love that comes out of those who are walking in the light, and that's why he focuses on this, you know, this is what someone walking in the darkness looks like, someone who can't forgive other people, but then someone who can't forgive their brethren. How do we know they're plugged into the power source? Because it's God's love that comes out of us. Remember when the, the man comes up and says, how many times do you have to forgive my brother? And what does Jesus tell them? 77, 7, 7 times 7, 7, whatever terms, right? It's different in the Greek. You can go different ways. Um, in other words, you were saying there is no limit to forgiveness because it's God's love that forgives. This is how one knows that they're a Christian. John tells us in his gospel over and over again that the world will know that we are his followers by what? By how we love one another. A Christian ought to love like a fish ought to swim. It's at the very core of who he or she is. To borrow John's terms in 1 John 2.9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness, and whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. This doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. Okay? That's another error that you know, other Protestants have made. They believe that you, know, you can go and achieve this second perfection. But if that were the case, if Christians can get to a point where they don't sin, then why in this letter that John is writing to Christians that he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you know, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I mean, the, the, the Christian, they sin. Right? But, but the fact that you can tell they're walking in the light is they'll repent. That's why at the very beginning, one of his purpose statements is, I'll write this so that you don't sin. And then he also says, you know, but if you do sin, repent. And God is faithful. He loved you first. He's going to forgive you. And that is what a Christian looks like, is this repentance. This leads us to our last verse, 1 John 4.12. And it reads as follows. No one has ever seen God. If we confess we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, at first, this may look like a little misplaced. What in the world does John bring up no one's seeing God? The first run through, I'm like, what does this have to do with everything he said in the beginning? But it's actually pretty, you know, remarkable because, I mean, it, it just, it's going to hit you square in the eyes because he summarizes everything and then he tells you something so radical and so scary. Um, so let me, let me read through that again. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In the Gospel of John, because nobody has seen God, the Gospel of John, right? Because nobody has seen God, John writes the Gospel to present to you, you know, what God looks like. That's why when the man is healed from his blindness, the true sight was that he saw Jesus and he believed in Jesus. The Gospel, to show you the invisible God, presents you with who? With Jesus Christ, right? That's why it says in, in uh, 1 John 18, I'm sorry, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God but God the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus, the Word. 
Now, the letter of 1 John, because no one has seen God, what does the letter of 1 John present? According to these verses, it presents the church. Because where's Jesus' physical body right now? It's at the right hand of the Father petitioning on our behalf. So then how, do we, how does the world see the invisible God today? What's John's answer? The church. Wow. Right? So if someone were to ask you, what is love? Another song. Baby, don't hurt me. If they were to ask you that question, the proper answer would be God is love. And if they were to ask you, well, what, give me a model of love, you would say Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. And then if they were to ask you, well, where can I go to see love? To experience love. According to John, the answer is the church. So you can see why John's writing this to a church that they just had a bunch of their believers and false teachers leave and he wants to encourage them. And you can see how odd it it, it seems for anybody who considers himself to be walking in the light to be holding any anger, anger against a brother. Because if that's the case within the church, then how are those who come outside the church supposed to come in here and see what love looks like? So if we ask the question, what is love, the answer from our text is God. This is what John means by his love is made complete in us. God's love goes full circle when Christians do what they ought to do. When brothers and sisters love one another, the invisible God is seen. When the world sees the radical self-giving love of Christians as empowered by the Holy Spirit, because he doesn't leave us to do this alone. He gives us his very spirit. That's why the, the next paragraph, which is another sermon, the first thing that paragraph talks about right after this one is the Holy Spirit, because that's what empowers us to do this radical love, this radical giving. When the world sees the radical self-giving of love of, of the Christians as empowered by the Holy Spirit, what they see is true life and true love. The two are wedded together. This is why eternal life is John's central theme. And this is why he treats life and love together. So to bring us into a close, and to put this in another analogy, you could say that the church is the audio and the visual presentation of God's love to a sick and dying world. Society's understanding of love is fickle. True religion is not something that we do in solitude. You can see then how bizarre it is when someone tells you that they're a Christian, but they don't go to church because that's where all the hypocrites are. That's exactly why you need to go to church. Because you've got to go love people. The, the idea of someone being a Christian and not going to church and being with the brethren is bizarre. And it's unbiblical. And John would scoff at that. And you can see that in our text. This is why we're supposed to forgive each other 77 times 7 times. This is why we're not to partake in communion if we hate our brother. Love is the defining characteristics of Christians. Holy love. And this love is life-giving. It's a presentation of eternal life here and now. So our question, our closing question for reflection is this. Are you part of this presentation? Or are you sitting on the sidelines? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the clarity of your word, Lord, that you have provided us, um, not only brothers uh, who were the disciples of Jesus, as John said, he had seen Jesus in the beginning of this letter. He's providing a testimony of what he has seen. But you have given them your spirit 
to breathe your words out through them. And these words, Lord, are the words that lead us to the word, Jesus Christ. They allow us to understand him and your plan of preparation, the gospel, from the beginning of creation to the end of mankind. And that you have given us these words so that we will have a testimony. And it's wonderful, Lord. How relevant it is, Lord. And then you've also given us the church so that we may live this in communion with the brethren so that the world could come and not only read about the gospel, but they could see the gospel and how Christians forgive and love one another radically and selflessly as the model of Christ himself had shown us on the cross. I pray, Father, for those who are not plugged into that source, Lord, that this question may haunt them, Lord, that they may come to you, Father, in submission and see how joy-inducing it is to be connected to the true source of life, that they can get a test, well, a taste, Father, of eternal life, of life in the here and now. Father, may we be a presentation to a sick and dying world. In your name we pray in gratitude. Amen.